If you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to Mark chapter 9. And we will be looking at verses 14 all the way down through verse 27. Mark 9, 14 to 27, as we continue to make our way uh, through the Gospel of Mark, but also as we continue to make our way through this one sequence in, in Mark, which really has, we're on the third of four paragraphs that sort of all tie together related to the mountaintop experience of Peter, James, and John uh, going up on the mountain with Jesus, you remember, and they see uh, Elijah and Moses with, with Jesus, uh, underestimate Jesus a little bit, receive correction, ends uh, with some glorious words and experiences, and now they are on their way back down, and in this morning's text... Uh, they, as we'll see, reach the bottom. Uh, and they reach the bottom in, in more ways than one. And that's where uh, Mark takes us in this paragraph this morning. So let's stand one more time and let me read verses 14 through 27. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us. And help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, 
The father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw a crowd that came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out, and after convulsing him terribly, he came out and the boy became like a corpse. So that many were saying that he was dead. But Jesus, having grasped his hand, raised him. And he was raised, or he stood up. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, you tell us that you are our light and our salvation. And therefore, we have nothing to fear. You assure us that you are, in fact, the strength of our life. And therefore, there is no one before whom we need really tremble. Even when those practicing evil come near, unto us, and it appears that they are going to devour your people, our adversaries and our enemies are all among us. You assure us in the end that they will surely stumble and they will fall. And if a great encampment of them encamps against us, our heart has no reason to fear. Even in the midst of battle, you lift us up and we are able to just keep on trusting you. So Lord, our great prayer request is this. that we would seek you, that you would show us yourself, that you would reveal yourself to us in and through our worship of you, that you would not hide your face from us, but lift up our heads and place yourself before us and that we would bring you sacrifices of shouts of praise even as we've been singing together this morning that we would sing and make melody in our hearts to you so hear our voice O Lord this morning as we gather before you as we call to you be gracious to us And answer us in all of our needs, 
for we have some. Lord, we have many, in fact, with great needs, painful needs, overwhelming needs, and some of them long and lasting and chronic and painful. And you teach us that the only thing to do in such circumstances is to fix our eyes upon you in faith and to wait for you, to be strong and to let our hearts be courageous as we wait for you in the confidence, as we've been singing this morning, as our text will make plain, in the confidence that the, your power, the power of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is capable of all, capable of anything, worthy of praise, and absolutely reliable and worthy of trust. So teach us, O Lord, to trust the Lord Jesus Christ and you through him. And we do pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. I mentioned we're making our way through Mark's gospel and the sequence that we're getting to the close of actually opened up in Mark 9, 2, where we read, And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus alone. So that's the classical mountaintop experience. Uh, parallel in the Old Covenant to Moses going up, receiving the law, the great moment in the covenant life of Israel. And here, in a similar way, it's Jesus up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John for this absolutely remarkable experience. And a couple weeks ago, we, we looked at the first phase then of uh, their coming down from the mountain where they're told surprisingly, don't talk to anybody about anything that you saw up there. Uh, At least not until uh, I'm raised from the dead. 
which throws even the inner circle three into some confusion, and they enter into a discussion as to what Jesus might possibly mean by being uh, raised from the dead. Verses 9 and 10, they were coming down the mountain. He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And they kept the matter to themselves, questioning, more literally, discussing, disputing. What was this rising from the dead? What does it mean? Well, it presupposes Jesus dies, and they didn't like that idea very much. And then we notice last Sunday morning that they begin asking Jesus about the significance of Elijah, given they had just seen him on top of the mountain and were aware of very significant statements about him in the prophetic writings, particularly in Malachi. And Jesus assures them again that they are not misreading the situation, but that rather the coming of Elijah is of great significance. Verses 11 through 13. Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. How is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased. And now we reach the next to the last paragraph in the whole sequence, which is by far the longest, and it is where they reach the bottom of the mountain in multiple senses at once. They reach the bottom of the mountain geographically. They reach the bottom of the mountain experientially. Uh, they reach the bottom of the mountain um, thematically. And they're reminded, as all believers are who have ever had something like a mountaintop experience that nobody gets to stay on the mountaintop that long. And no matter how great your experience of God was or is on that mountain, you eventually return to life and find it with all the messy standard equipment still in place that was there when you went up on the mountain. Verse 14, and when he came down to the disciples, that is the remaining nine, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. So the scribes are arguing with the nine disciples. Immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about? And you see, already 
sort of all the glory has faded in one sense. And now we're back with scribes and nine disciples who, as we'll see, uh, will have just failed to do what they set out to do and a confused crowd and an informed opposition and life is back to being something of a mess. Which it, quite frankly, very, very often is. Most of us have far greater percentage of our lives spent in messy sorts of experiences than in mountaintop experiences. Praise the Lord if you've had mountaintop experiences. Many of you have, but you know this about them. You never get to stay for long. And the next thing you know, you're back down in the midst of the scribes and the mess. State our thesis for this morning this way. We're called upon to rely upon the power of Jesus in a dark and twisted world. Because that's the fallen world that we live in, that we spend the bulk of our time in, that everybody lives in. We're called upon to rely on the power of Jesus in a dark and twisted world. Uh, Four angles this morning. Number one, we are to be reminded that much of life is a mess, as if we needed to be reminded. Uh, But when you come off a mountaintop experience, uh, it's life itself that reminds you right away. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's exactly what we have here. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them. That is, Jesus and the Inner circle three, they come back to the nine, and they're surrounded by a crowd, and scribes are arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, they were greatly amazed, and they ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. For he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whatever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams, and he grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long will I bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately he convulsed the boy and fell to the ground, and he's rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Now, get the picture. So this is happening. The boy now is on the ground, rolling around. It's, it's kind of a spectacle. And Jesus turns to the father of the, of the boy while that's happening and says, as if pointing to it, so how long has this been happening? How long has this been happening? Since he's only a boy, when he says from childhood, you can almost translate that into basically all his life. Basically all his life. This is how it's always been. 
And then a truly horrific picture of this life. And it has often cast him into fire. Now you just think about that for a moment. You don't have to be in fire very long before it has horrific consequences. It has often cast him into fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. So now they're back down at the bottom. And there's the nine, and they're in discussion with the scribes. Now, we've met the scribes repeatedly in Mark's gospel, and the scribes have, they're very, very consistent about this one thing. They can't stand Jesus, and they're critical of him no matter what he's saying or doing. So in Mark 2.6, they accuse Jesus of blasphemy because he speaks about forgiving sins. In Mark 2.16, they accuse Jesus of worldliness because he has meals with tax gatherers and sinners. But even if he does a miracle, as he does in Mark 3, then they accuse Jesus, the scribes do, of casting out the devil by the power of the devil. Mark 3.22. And then finally they accuse the disciples, in Mark 7.5, of not walking in the tradition of the elders. And Jesus has recently warned the disciples that the scribes will be part of the group that have him arrested and murdered. So that's who's there. That's who's down there. It's these friendly neighborhood scribes. Uh, And you can imagine the argument. Well, maybe you guys would be a little bit better at healing um, if you didn't pretend to be able to forgive sins. Maybe you guys would be a little better at healing uh, if you didn't spend so much time with uh, uh, sinners and tax collectors. Maybe you guys would be a little bit better at helping other people if you didn't convert with the devil as you do. And if you spent a little bit more time paying attention to the wisdom of the ages as found in our father's traditions. They're arguing with them about why they are unable to help this father and his son. Uh, But I want you to notice there, no matter what Jesus does, they got a problem with him. No matter what he does. If he heals somebody... That's a problem. Did it by the power of the devil. Said the wrong thing when he, when he did do it. And then anywhere he goes and anybody he associates, that's a problem as well. And that's a warning, right? That the, you know, that the opponents of Jesus are going to largely be pretty consistent. They don't like anything about him. And he warns us. You know, don't be surprised if the world hates you. 
Don't be surprised if the scribes don't like you either. Because uh, they, they never like anybody associated with me. We've already touched on this, but he then goes on. When he asked the father, how long has this been happening? He said, from childhood. So I've been cast him into the fire and into the water. Uh, I, I think that's, you know, that little sentence, as simple as it is, right? It's a sort of a merism of there's, there's nothing more opposite uh, than fire and water. And the, the idea is, and Satan will, this, this demon tries to destroy my son on both of the extremes. Uh, if it's not burning him in the fire, it's trying to drown him in the water, you know. Uh, so you got, you know, fire to the left of me and water to the right, and as the song goes, and here I am in the middle uh, with, with nowhere to go, no safe direction to follow, and this is how it's been um, all the way through his life. Tremendously, tremendously, tremendously difficult. And he asked the disciples to help him, and they tried. And nothing happened. Um, The text simply says, and they were not able. They were not strong enough to do it. The Anglican J.C. Ryle little expository thoughts on the Gospels, writes these few sentences very, very insightfully. They were learning by humbling experience the great lesson of John 15, 5. Without me, you can do nothing. It was a useful lesson, no doubt, an overrule to their spiritual good, It would probably be remembered all the days of their lives, this public humiliation where they try to do this thing with the scribes looking on and criticizing and they fall flat. I doubt they ever did forget that. I think Ryle is certainly right. And then he says this to all of us. The things we learn by smarting experience abide in our memories Well, truths heard only with the ear often are forgotten. And we may be sure it was a bitter lesson at that time. And then he writes this great little sentence. We do not love to learn that we can do nothing without Christ. (laughs) We do not love to learn that we can do nothing without Christ. Without Christ, which is another way of saying we do not love to learn by our failures. We do not love to learn by falling flat on our faces. But we often do learn the deepest lessons precisely there. Well, we are failing. And well, we are falling flat. Um, 
That's not who we want to be. You know, we want to be spiritual Jedi knights. You know, when we pull our Bible out, stuff is going to happen now. But that's never who we are. That's never who we are. We're always this other thing. We're always the nine in desperate need of Jesus' help and helpless and powerless without him. That's who we always are. Secondly, we're to be reminded that we are prone to doubt the power of Jesus. Now, this is a tricky little this is a tricky little phrase. Um, uh, I don't know if you, you, you've noticed it or, or not. If you, if you pay attention to your grammatical marks in your Bible, you, you will definitely notice it, right? Um, verses 22 to 23. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if I can... Now, if I'm not paying attention, I always read that as if it has a question mark there. If I can. If I can. But you'll notice in in your Bible, there's no question mark. And there's no question mark in the Greek text either. It's just a little statement. If I can. Uh, What's going on there? Well, in the syntax guide to the New Testament, Charles Lee Irons, you know, he sides with me the way I would naturally read it, though I, I think we're both wrong. And he puts it in, he just puts it in quotation marks and gives a question mark, even though there's no question mark uh, in the text. He just says, if I can, in quotation marks. Um, and I think the sense of it is pretty, is, is pretty, close to that, but uh, Fritz Reinecker and his linguistic key to the Greek New Testament, I think he's got it. He's got it. He just puts, and I quote, it's this way, and keeps the explanation part, as to your if I can. That's definitely the sense of it. If you can help, and Jesus says back to him, as to your if I can. I've got something to say about that. As to your if I can, which is a a simple way of saying, as to your expressed doubts, as to my capability. Now let's be fair to this dad. He's got a lot of reason for doubt. His boy has been in trouble all his life and he thinks he's tried everything and nothing worked. And then he heard, oh, Jesus and his disciples are over here. He showed up. Well, a little disappointing. Jesus isn't there, but I got got nine of them. Uh, Let's see what the nine can do. And the nine were able to do nothing. And now Jesus comes.
And even though he's not a Scandinavian, he's got those wise Scandinavian sensibilities. You don't want to get your hopes up too high. That way you'll never fall that far. So he says, if if you can help, I would appreciate it. And Jesus is picking up on this. If you can help, and I doubt it, and I doubt it, but still, if you can help, I would appreciate it. Now, the text is really, really clear on this point. There's pieces of this, as we'll see in the next point, that aren't as straightforward and plain. But this part is really, really, really plain. This text tells us plainly, Jesus can do anything as to ability, never lacks the ability. Uh, Worship team read this morning from the first eight verses of Psalm 115, mostly for verse 3, but let me just read into verse 3, the first three verses. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness, why should the nations say, where is their God? Why would they ask that question? Because it's a mocking question. They look at Israel, and God doesn't seem to be doing anything to help them. The Babylonians are crushing them, or the Assyrians are crushing them, or somebody is crushing them, and nothing is happening. No good thing is taking place. And to add injury to insult, on top of that, then the enemies say, so, where is your God now? And then Jesus' answer is going to parallel the psalmist's answer. Oh, our God is in the heavens. And he does whatever he pleases. He does whatever he pleases. He can do anything. Uh, uh, There's never, ever, ever a power problem with God. He always has the power to do anything, anything at all, anything that he pleases, always, always. And this is where the crux of the matter arrives. Thirdly, we are to remind ourselves of the absolute power of Jesus. We'll say, well, that's almost the same thing. Yes, but it's, it's cast into stark relief here. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. All things are possible to one who believes. Now, Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, uh, writes, writes this. Um, only believe and you will obtain. Say, well, that's what it said. Well, is it? Only believe and you will obtain. Now, Calvin's my favorite commentator, so 
You know, I, I don't like to be critical of him, especially when he's making comments on, because uh, he's, he's just the best of the best at, at this, generally speaking. But here, I think, I think he might have said more than he actually believes in practice. Say, well, maybe not. You know, maybe this is Calvin as charismatic, Calvin as Pentecostal, because that is exactly what that statement sounds like. Uh, he just says, only believe and you will obtain. Implying you get the belief right, you get the thing you want. Every time, that's how it works. That's how it works. And Calvin's comment moves in that same direction. Only believe and you will obtain. Um, now, just in a providence, I didn't go out of my way to do this. It just happened to be that in my regular New Testament Bible reading, I read Matthew's parallel to this passage this morning. And Matthew's parallel in Matthew 17 even moves stronger in this direction than, than Mark does. In other words, Calvin's comment would be much, much, much more defensible and really hard to attack in the Matthew passage. But the modern commentator, who just died a few years ago, C.E.B. Cranfield, one of the best uh, exegetes of the 20th century, born in 1915, died in 2015 at 100 years of age. Here's what Cranfield wrote. Now listen to this. You've got to listen very carefully because he says almost the same thing four different ways. And then I'll I'll just tell you in advance, and he's going to put most of his approval on the fourth one. So here's what he says you might be able to get out of Jesus' statement. um, All things are possible to the one who believes. Number one, there is nothing which a man who has faith cannot do. Might mean that. Number two, there's nothing which cannot be done for a man who has faith. Number three, There is nothing which is impossible for a man who has faith. And number four, a man who has faith will not set any limit on what Jesus can do. Cranfield says, number four is the winner. In other words, and and that... Now let's go back and notice exactly what Jesus says to this father. All things are possible to the one who believes. Implying this, I can do anything that I want for you. Anything. 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 Absolutely anything. 
Um, Now, Cranfield says, we've already seen this sort of exchange back in Mark 1, verse 40. And there, a key qualifier is thrown into the mix. Um, Mark 1, 40 says, says this. It's when the leper comes. A leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling before him said, If you will, you can make me clean. Now notice how clearly in that statement there's two questions and not just one. Uh, There's two questions. What do you will... And what are you able? Um, the leper doesn't know what Jesus is willing to do. That's why he uses the conditional. If. If you will. I know this. You are able. You are able. We can often know the will of God in things. We never always know the will of God in things. In fact, we usually don't know the will of God when we would most like to. When the stakes are at their highest. When we're desperate to know it. And would find so much comfort in knowing it. We usually don't know it then. Now Calvin sounds like he believes that you can know both things simultaneously. You can know the will of God and you can know the power of God simultaneously, perfectly. So that if you believe... You obtain. Get the faith right. God gives you what you want every time. Now that certainly is not the experience of most people in the Bible. And that's not your and my experience. And that certainly wasn't Calvin's experience. Who had lousy health all his life. And he no doubt prayed about it. And believed that Christ could do anything. And he had ill health all his life. For the last year and a half on Fridays, I've been doing a, um, a Zoom prayer meeting with my, my brother. My sister's on the continent. She's usually in it. And there's a, uh, there's a guy on this prayer meeting who uh, very much comes from uh, the, the Pentecostal tradition. And about, uh, oh, four or five months ago, it was, uh, no, four, it was fall, it was fall. My, my sister-in-law had, had the flu. Uh, she had gotten the flu on a Monday. I do this call on a Friday. And so she had already passed through, she had already passed through the worst of her flu symptoms by Friday. And so... Um, Somebody else bought it up because I, I only go on Friday, so I didn't know she'd been sick all week. So I said, how are you, how are you feeling today? 
uh, Sherry. Oh, better, but I got a ways to go. And my brother's friend says, well, Sherry, I told you back on Monday, if you would have just prayed in faith believing, you wouldn't have had to go through this whole week feeling lousy. You could have gotten the the whole thing taken care of Monday, you know, before noon. But you didn't. So here we are. Is that what Jesus is saying here? Now, there's whole Christian traditions that say, yep, yeah, definitely. Definitely. And the language, especially if you go to Matthew's parable, the language seems to fit that decently well. But in the whole of biblical theology, it doesn't fit quite as well. Right? Uh, for instance, when James says in James chapter 1 and verse 2, Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet with trials of any kind. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, patience. Well, there's no need that there's no need for patience if you can do if if you can just get rid of the problem in an instant every single time. James, James should say, "Count it all joy, brothers, if you lack faith to such a degree that you must undergo various trials for any length of time." It's unfortunate, but some of you are like that. Sorry, um, uh, but no, I don't think so. I don't think so. In other words, Jesus' point here is our comfort comes in this. You should take great comfort in this. God can do anything. You never have a problem that's simply beyond you. The perfect attitude for Cranfield's mind is the leper in Mark 140. He said, this is the ideal that he thinks Jesus is still aiming at in chapter 9. If you will, you can make me clean. I know what you can do. You can do anything. And so if, it, if you will, you can make me clean. Fourth and finally, we are to be reminded that we struggle to believe. Now I'm going to come back and redeem Calvin. Because uh, here, his comment is simply the best. This, this, this is what makes him the best of the best of the best as a commentator. Uh, not just the insight into the passage, but the application of the insight um, so immediately the father of the child cried out and said I believe help my unbelief and that, to that little phrase help my unbelief here's what Calvin writes he declares that he believes and yet confesses his unbelief although these things seem inconsistent there is no one 
who does not experience the same thing himself. Nowhere is there perfect faith, and therefore it follows that we are partly unbelievers. Yet in his kindness, God pardons us and reckons us as believers on account of our small portion of faith. Meanwhile, it is up to us to shake off carefully the remnants of unbelief that remain within us and fight against them and ask the Lord to correct them. And so often as we toil in this struggle, we must flee to him again and again. For if we consider aright what is given to each man, it will be very clear that those who excel in faith are rarest, and those of a middling faith are few. And most of us are endowed with only a small measure. Um, Meanwhile, he says, it is up to us to shake off carefully the remnants of our unbelief. It is the comfort that we lose by not being able to say, look, I know these two things for sure. God works all, together, all things together for good to those who love him, and I'm one of those. And he's able to do anything. So he'll do my good by his power And I recommend this. And we usually recommend the immediate release from the painful trouble we're in. And nothing else makes any sense. You don't need to apologize for that. You just do need to know that to believe that Christ is able... And to believe that you know exactly what the will of God is are not the same thing. Are not the same thing. The Bible enables you to believe the one absolutely. He is able. There's no question about it. He's able to do anything, anytime, anywhere that he pleases. What you're not as able to know is what he pleases and why he's doing the kinds of things that he's doing. Because back to my friend on the prayer line, my friend assumes it is never, ever, ever the will of God to try somebody's patience with flu symptoms. James implies It has been the will of God to do that in every flu season as long as we have ever kept records. I think James is right. 
I think James balancing off. And yet at the same time, Calvin's little comment, and then we'll close. It's up to us to strengthen our faith. Well, what are we supposed to do? No believes in human inability any more than Calvin does in the Augustinian tradition. But it's up to us. So here it is. What you stay away from, what you go toward. First three verses of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the instruction of the Lord, and on that instruction he meditates day and night. And by doing that, what happens to him? Well, he becomes like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf doesn't wither. And in all that he does, in all that he does, he prospers. Um, Let's pray. Father in heaven, may we believe what we can know with a certainty, with an absolute certainty, that your ability is infinite, matchless, certain. And therefore we know that whatever going on with us The problem is never that you're unable to help us, that you're coming up short, that as to your power, you've proven insufficient. That has never happened, that could never happen, that will never happen. Reality is simply not like that. Lord, enable us to know your ability and trust and trust your character as you manage our lives, often by trying our faith with patience when you are always able, always able, to release us from our trouble instantly. But you haven't. And we know it. And we wonder about it. Lord, may we know what we can know and trust you completely with what we can know. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.